The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Our guest today is a highly regarded tech leader, a student of history, the son of artists and an optimist. History tells you generally to be an optimist, actually, I think more than being a pessimist, but even though human nature has its moments along the way. Uh, I, and I, so I tend to be an optimist. Uh, at the same time, I think you, it also says that you've got to work hard to get to the right outcomes. They don't happen accidentally. His career path was not linear. He says it rarely is. I just say, take the opportunities in front of you, just take them and, and it'll be fine. After a long career in consulting, he retired. He then worked on aid projects for the British government that took him all over the world. He retired again. Then came an opportunity he couldn't turn down. Mark Foster is now Senior Vice President of IBM Services, where he oversees a massive workforce of 250,000 people. In a reflective, thoughtful interview, he says if he hadn't been tempted by dessert at a career fair back in his college days, his professional journey may have looked quite different. Black Forest Gatto was particularly good at the what was then the Arthur Anderson Management Consulting um, uh, event, so I went along for the cake and... <laughs> 27 years later, I left the company but <laughs> as the head of consulting. Bloomberg Live's global editor, Mark Miller, caught up with Mark Foster earlier this year in Davos, Switzerland. More from that conversation in a minute, but we begin with a quick update on how Mark and IBM are doing in the midst of the pandemic. Here's their conversation. You went home from Davos. We, you know, had quite a conversation about kind of what the priorities of the business were, how you think about them. At what point did you become aware that um, the coronavirus situation would really be something that would disrupt um, almost everything in our lives and our businesses? When did that hit you? Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't that long after Davos. Actually, to be honest with you, Mark. I mean, I actually, by by chance, one of my friends is. Um, is Dr. Peter, Professor Peter Piot, who happens to run the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In fact, I met him at Davos, and he was he was already he was already giving me um, heads up. This was going to be bigger and more worrying than most people thought. Uh, so, of course, I don't think even we, with our our plans, had expected something of this global pervasive nature to, to kick in. But luckily, um, we were well prepared, and it meant that you know very quickly, like within days of, if you like, the world going into its sort of its more you know complete lockdown you know I was able to have you know you know close to 99 percent of my 240,000 people that worked for me were working from home you know very quickly um, and uh, and also we were able to help clients with that um, transition as well uh, so so I think you know it's obviously an interesting time and um, we're still in the midst of it because obviously now we're sort of helping clients think about the sort of the gradual phased return to something approaching, um, you know, working normal working practices, but uh, but clearly a long way to go. You've got to both manage your own company's 
um, situation while also working with your clients all over the world who I'm sure had urgent, urgent issues that you had to jump on immediately to, to help them get through this. So how do you balance those two things? The first thing is obviously just to concern ourselves with our own people. You know, that was the first, the first action and was to make sure that we had in place you know, the right procedures, the right um, you know, overall ways of, um, of interacting uh, that, that made them feel that we were looking out for them, uh, knew where they were, understood their own situations. I think job number two was, was obviously to, to then you know, very clearly uh, uh, to, to understand how, what our clients needed. And, uh, and that, that meant a huge amount of outreach to clients. I mean, one of the benefits of this was, of course, suddenly I could almost talk to any client in the world wherever they were because they were all at home. And, <laughs> and they, were, they were actually accessible. And, in fact, the accessibility of, of clients went, you know, actually went up quite a bit because people weren't actually spending their time flying around or sitting in long meetings, etc. What's the most surprising thing that you've experienced, either personally or um, as you've uh, gone about the work in this new environment? I, I, well, I think from the surprising point of view, I think I've, I guess I have been genuine, genuinely positively surprised, or by the way, about actually how adaptive people mm-hmm. have been. But, uh, people have been unbelievably adaptive at every level of their lives. I mean, remarkably. I, I think that... Um, as I say, I think we're now going to sort of see, it's going to be interesting to see now also whether the spirit of, because there's a certain degree here that there's a spirit of actually we're all in it together. And by that I mean we're really all in it together, where all is everybody in the world. And I think, you know, the question is, can that, can that be a force for, for greater um, um, integration, understanding, and general coming together across the big issues the world is facing? Or will people... Um, uh, coming out of this downturn and facing the near-term pressures that's going to undoubtedly be on our economies and GDP around the world and everything else, actually hunker down and and get back into the islands again and, and go into smaller smaller groups and, and disconnect. So it's a very, for me, it's going to be very interesting to see how this next period plays out around whether or not this has been a unifying experience or or one that actually uh, leads to near-term fragmentation uh, and clearly... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, I have a hope it's the, it's the former rather than the latter. Let's go back to Davos now and to the conversation we recorded just before the pandemic affected the world. I noticed in your background that you were a student of ancient history. Um, how far back does ancient go? For an American, that's one thing, but for someone who is a non-American ancient, it can mean something quite different. It can. Actually, I actually have a degree in, in ancient Greek, Latin, and ancient history. So and all the way back. All the way back, all the way back. So in fact, my, my judgment of ancient history tends to start with about Homer, who's about 700 BC-ish. Um, that's, that's where I tend to start and kind of go from there. So how does a, a student of ancient history uh, end up um, in a top leadership position in a tech company? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> One I ask myself on a regular basis. No, I, th- I think the interesting thing is, well, first of all, I, I, mean, I like to think that you know, I was encouraged from a very early age to have something of an inquiring mind, an inquiring mind, and, you know, just interested in kind of patterns of things and kind of how things end up being as they are and the, the combination between things of chance and things of, you know, deliberateness, if you like, along the way. And I think history teaches you that, that along the way there have been moments in time when something really important happened. I happen to be reading a book right now on the, um, uh, the Persian Wars, uh, the Battle of Marathon, and you know the impact that the the fact that the Athenians and the Spartans, a few of them, got together, 
stopped um, the various invasions by the, the by the um, by Xerxes and Darius in 480 or so BC fundamentally changed the history of Europe. The fact that one battle took place, the Greeks won, the Persians were pushed back. That led to the flowering of of, of the Greek Greek civilization, the Roman civilization probably as well. Christianity probably followed off the back of the Roman civilization. The world would have been so different if that one battle had gone differently, potentially. So understanding this kind of moments in history that move things, I think is a very interesting kind of um, perspective. More importantly, perhaps is the word perspective. I think that what, you know, looking back over that kind of time frame, any kind of time frame does, is make you put the moment you're in right now in some kind of arc of where it sits in a bigger picture. And that allows you to think about you know, things, frankly, in a less transactional way, in a more, a more fundamental way, and particularly as we now think about the trends of technology, some of the societal things we've been talking about here. You know, we're talking about big arc things that are actually going to have, or have had a fundamental change in the way the world works and will have a fundamental impact on the way the world uh, works. And I think trying to think about things from that angle rather than necessarily the moment in time when a specific piece of new tech appears or a specific issue appears standing back a bit, I think, is something that has served me well and uh, has sort of helped me end up being where I am. So looking out 100 years, which is not a very long time in the scheme of things, certainly in the periods you're talking about, but 100 years from now even, um, is there some moment or issue that people will look back on at this time as a kind of defining moment, do you think? Well, I think some of the things that we have talked about here around some of the social impacts that are taking place around the application of technology now at the heart of all of our lives, all of our working lives, our home lives, everything that we do is now very, very deliberately and directly connected to technology. And I think we're at a moment where that is, and some of the conversations here about very fundamentally affecting behaviours, uh, affecting culture, affecting knowledge and views of the world, and I think we'll recognize we're living in a very different time from the amount of information that any individual is now processing, uh, the amount of inputs they have to filter, uh, the way they then have to sort of leverage that or not to make the right calls. I think we're going to find this one of those moments where we really have changed you know, almost the psyche of humanity in a pretty fundamental way, which has not happened before. Other changes in technology have had big effects on parts of the world, um, but large parts of the world have been unaffected by them. This is touching everybody, even the most remote villages and the most remote parts of the world. They're being touched by this technology and by the messages of this technology and by its impact on their lives. And I think we'll look back and say, we either handled that well or we didn't handle it well. It either led to more cohesion or it led to more divisiveness. And that's, I think, you know, probably for the next hundred years to tell. I was about to say, you know, will this be seen as a, you know, a, a pivotal moment for the good or or for the bad, and we can't really know at this moment, right? We can't, I, and, I, and obviously I, I, I tend to be an optimist. Right. Um, uh, history tells you generally to be an optimist, actually, I think more than being a pessimist, but even though human nature has its moments along the way. Uh, I, and I, so I tend to be an optimist. Uh, at the same time, I think you, it also says that you've got to work hard to get to the right outcomes. They don't happen accidentally. Uh, and so I think as we look at the, the, you know, the history in front of us and politicians and people in business and people who have influence over the world we're going to live in, I think we have to be de very deliberate about what we're doing because we're dealing with some big stuff. I mean, I, we, we haven't, you know, obviously the next hundred years, we're going to know a lot more about where we are on the climate change agenda. We're probably going to know definitively where we are 
on that over this period of time, you know, that's going to be, you know, fundamental to life on this planet and its longevity and the judgment about whether we'll still be here in a thousand years or not. Because that's pretty big. And I think, you know, that, but as I say, we've been talking about here at Davos, that's not going to happen, you know, the response to that won't happen accidentally. It involves deliberate uh, convergent, cohesive action. Right. Or a deliberate inaction. Yes. You know. Yes. Uh, I read that your parents were artists. Yes. Uh, what kind? Uh, my, my parents, my mother was a, was a, a painter and in fact has taught art. And my father was a graphic artist. Uh, my father's still, still around actually. Uh, he's 95. And uh, he's, uh, he was head of graphic design at the BBC in his day. Um, but he retired. He retired from that job uh, you know, uh, now 45 years ago. He's still actively doing graphic art. He still does it on a Mac, on a Mac computer. Uh, he um, still, I Skype with him every weekend. So I'm, I'm now interacting with a man who was born in 1924, you know, who lived through the Second World War, actually was on D-Day um, landings. And, um, and my sons are talking to him about pictures he's drawing on the Mac, all the Christmas cards we get are produced on a Mac from him. So what he has seen in a lifetime of technology is just incredible. That's one lifetime. Uh, and so thinking about what that means for what will happen to my children, what they'll see over their lifetimes, hopefully. You know, these are these are really. Um, I think it's amazing. Uh, a, what it does talk to is the adaptiveness of humans around all of this, um, and actually also talks to the fact that you know perhaps it's not a function of age, how much one's capable to learn new things. It's actually about one's propensity to learn and fundamental curiosity. And my dad seems to have a lot of that. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. How did that, uh, their roles as artists, how did that affect your childhood? Well, well, apart from the fact that my house was full of um, cardboard, colored cardboard and sticky tape and sellotape, because in those days graphic art was done that way. I mean, the BBC's graphic art was entirely produced um, by cardboard cutout and uh, no, 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 this, no, this graphic, no, this computer stuff was, was there at all. So the house was full of that. Um, and I, so I grew up in that environment. Um, unfortunately, the, the artistic gene bypassed me almost completely. Uh, so my brother is a fabulous artist, a uh, really genuinely fabulous artist, uh, and uh, his family are also fabulous artists. Um, I, I'm reduced to using it in PowerPoint, which is a very, very sad, a sad end for my parents' artistic DNA is to end up in, in a scribbled scribble PowerPoint presentation. That's basically where I've ended up. I also read something about a dessert, or a dessert in general being potentially key to where you are today in your career? Well, yes. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I was, I, it, is, it is true that, you know, back to this luck point, so we talk a lot about moments where life goes one way or the other, and, and I ended up you know, joining um, what become, the company that became Accenture um, off the back of the fact that a friend of mine at university did say that we were going along to the various milk round um, events, and he told me that he'd heard that the um, desserts were particularly good, the Black Forest Gatto was particularly good at the what was then the Arthur Anderson Management Consulting um, uh, event, so I went along for the cake, and 27 years later I left the company, but uh, as the head of consulting. Uh, so now uh, it's interesting how you know serendipity 
does does affect you along the way. And I, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do as a career. Well, I was going to say, did you intend to go into consulting? No, I planned to be a classics teacher. I even had a role lined up at my school to go and teach Greek at my um, old school. And uh, that was where I was planning to go. So if they offered you better dessert, would you be a classicist? Quite, quite possibly, quite possibly. If, it, if there's some good some baklava out there, maybe that's what I would have gone for. But no, I think that in the end, exactly, I can't, you can't tell, uh, you're looking back now, but it is mo a moments in time where, I mean, I had started to think a bit more about whether I wanted to do something else a little bit more, a bit more in business. I was also, I did feel it was important. I had recognised then, this is now 1983, 82, that technology was going to be a big deal, that I could see that, the fact that I had grown up with almost had an entire degree that had not touched technology in any form or shape, that this thing with technology was going to be quite a big deal. And the fact, in fact, that at the time the company I joined was going to train me in COBOL programming um, and RPG3 and how computers worked was a pretty important thing uh, and actually served me extremely well ever since. So um, 30 years on then, long, successful career. Um, are there were there any setbacks in that career? Oh, many setbacks. I think I think the, I think the key thing about a career is always to recognise it's not linear. It doesn't go always in the same same direction. I've been lucky enough to be generally successful at things, but at various points along that journey, I've thought about changing direction. I've thought things weren't going fast enough or far enough, or I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. But for the most part, I've been lucky around that. But but also, you know, when when things don't go your way, I think the important thing for me has been to to keep looking to the next thing and to take, I would say, fundamentally being an optimist. You know, um, you know even as I changed roles, you know, I, I took a, you know, I retired, I retired from Accenture after 27 years there. Um, I then, you know, again, really had much of an idea what I wanted to do next, other than hopefully enjoy some time with my kids who had not seen very much of me over the prior period. Uh, but then I found myself being very lucky to be appointed to be one of the UK government's, you know, three commissioners overseeing the aid budget of the UK. And I had four years of visiting everything from Palestinian refugee camps to Somalia to Congo to Bangladesh, seeing another whole aspect of the world, which I would say again, back to, you know, back to, back to this idea of proportion and perspective, I think is the other dimension of perspective. One is a perspective of time, the other is a perspective of, of, of how fortunate you are uh, and, and what the real issues that are going on in the world actually really are, to put things in proportion. And I think what that experience gave me was another whole view of that, a very unique experience of spending my time in people's homes, in huts, in sitting under trees in villages, in clinics and schools um, around the world, dealing with people who, are, who really are facing you know, the ultimate issues of their lives. And I think that was something that was, you know, again, by, by fortune, chance came along, but gave me another whole perspective. And then again, you know, five years after I retired, you know, being asked to take on running one of the world's largest technology companies again was another, another moment in time. And how did that perspective of your, your work in government and the experiences you had, for example, sitting you know, in people's huts, how has that then um, uh, informed the work that you're doing at IBM? Well, I think it's bringing a bit of a sense of purpose to things. I mean, I think overall, uh, we've talked a lot here this week actually about um, the importance of purpose and intent behind everything that we're doing in business. Uh, the issue of, of, of stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism. And I think that, you know, that view that, I mean, I'm very pleased that I'm, I have, you know, 250,000 people who work in the organisation that I have the, the honour of leading. That's 250,000 families around the world that are 
gaining through the fact they have a, a role to play in this organisation, but and all the people who then work in the ecosystem of around all those people. So as a minimum, there's an impact about purpose that, that comes from that, and about wanting to see those people thrive and have you know, uh, fulfilling careers and lives. But I think it's more important about what, what an organisation, the scale and impact of an IBM can have on global issues. I mean, we can, we were engaged this morning on a really good conversation about the impact we're trying to have on the, on the global farming agenda and sustainable farming. Uh, uh, we, we can have a huge impact on sustainability through our, our research, through our ability to help our clients change the way they do their work. Uh, we have a massive ability to impact you know, many parts of people's lives. We're very focused on the agenda of training and developing people such that they're ready to live in this new world we're going to live in with so much technology around it. So I think that my experience of you know, seeing you know, the challenges that the world faces fairly, fairly full in the face, I think gives you a bit of a sense of how you know, a large organisation can help with that at a small level and at a, at a larger level. So if you had the chance to give the young Mark Foster advice now, knowing what you know now, uh, to that Mark Foster who wandered into an Arthur Anderson uh, job fair, whatever it was, um, what would you say to that Mark Foster? I'd just say, take the opportunities in front of you, just take them, and and it'll be fine. That's what I'd say, and, and I think that fundamentally would sum up how I view my choices along the way, is that I've had moments where I've had to make a choice, I've had to step up and do something, but, I, but in the end, I've tend to find I've, either, I've definitely learned something, generally been successful at it, and, and found it to be a platform to go and do the next the next thing. And, and I would just say that that's the total. To me, I would just say, keep going with your gut, and um, and, and hopefully with a, with a, with a you know, with a following wind, it'll all be okay. Did you have mentors along the way? That yes, were many many mentors along the way that were important to me. Okay. And, and I, I mean, mentors from my from my teachers at school. I'm still in touch with my classic teacher that taught me. Latin um, when I was um, you know, 12, uh, 13. Um, my, my tutor at university had just sadly just passed at the age of 99, um, uh, but I was in contact with him up until the last year of his life. Um, uh, uh, and uh, very good mentors. I had great mentors in, uh, in uh, Accenture, some of whom, in fact, you helped mentor me around, around coming to Davos. I had a very strong mentor who helped me get into the world of Davos and get comfortable here and confident to be able to, to function among this group here. But I've had, and then I've had mentors in every every step of my life, and I think that uh, I'm a great believer that that's a really important thing. And obviously, I like try, I like to imagine that I can try to be a mentor now to other people. I was going to ask, do you right pass that on to people that you you're mentoring? I like to think I like to think so, um, and, I, and I think that I, I do think I do think about it. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I obviously touch a lot of people, um, and some people I'm mentoring more directly, and some people I like to think I'm providing an environment in which within which they are mentored by others. Uh, to some extent, so in the end of the day, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a degree of a direct connection on, on a, a number of people, but also on, um, on um, uh, large groups of people. And one of the things that's interesting about being, being back here in Davos, I've bumped into lots of people from my old, my old company, you know, and it's interesting to see how, how it, I was pleased to see how warmly, I guess, they remember <laughs> the impact I had on their careers. So, I mean, at least the good news is that some people appear to have had a positive impact from this. So let's circle back, I think, to where we began, which is looking at this this moment in time and how will it be viewed, you know, 100, 500 years from now, which we obviously can't know. But as you think about this this pivotal time that we do seem to be in, what gives you optimism and what scares you about this moment? 
I think what gives me optimism is the fundamental adaptiveness of the human um, nature and our ability to get things right more than get things wrong. So I think I feel I feel optimistic about our ability to do that. So I think that in the end of the day, sane minds tend to tend to see out. But I think at the end of the day, but I but my fears are of course that you know we we do get lost in the noise. We, the noise of all this stuff that's going on uh, pushes us back into the tactical, pushes us back into the short term, pushes us back into the, the small and the and the uh, and rather than actually thinking about the bigger picture. And I think when we get to that situation, when we go in on, inwards on ourselves rather than outwards. Is the real risk, and I think trying to find ways there for all the time to build bridges rather than to try and um, lock doors on people, I think, is a pretty pretty key thing. So I think, well, maybe there'll be some technology developed that will allow us to check back in together in a hundred years and see <laughs> exactly. if we were right or not. Exactly. <laughs> but thank you very much, Mark. A pleasure. A pleasure. That was IBM's Mark Foster speaking to Bloomberg Live's global editor, Mark Miller. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Remember, you can find more episodes of Out of Office on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gasparay. I'm Malika Kapoor. I'll be back next week. Till then, stay well, stay safe, and thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.